Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Here's a joke I just saw on the internet. Why shouldn't you write with a broken pencil? It's pointless. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner parties. You just got a joke from musician Mike Hadreas, better known as Perfume Genius. That'll help break the ice. His new album, Too Bright, is out now, and we'll hear more from him later. Plus, we'll speak with beloved actor Jeffrey Tambor, star of the Larry Sanders show, Arrested Development, and the celebrated new show, Transparent. Also coming up, music legend Quincy Jones talks about music legend Clark Terry, comedian and author Bob Odenkirk advocates for his abdomen and baby food through the ages. We talk about it and eat it. Because that's our job. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Julia Pearson is out as director of the Secret Service. Dallas, the first American city to see someone show up in an emergency room with Ebola. The biggest challenge to Beijing's authority in Hong Kong since 1997. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Lizzie O'Leary. She is the host of Marketplace Weekend. Lizzie, what story are you going to be talking about at your dinner parties this week? I am going to be talking about the precation, man. Precation. We love these new words. Yeah, What's... it's so jargony, right? What, so what is, is it? it? So this is a concept. You may have read about it in Slate. It comes as much jargon does from Silicon Valley. So you have companies that are actually paying workers to take a paid vacation before they start. Before they start working for the company? So it's kind of like a signing bonus, right? Yeah. Silicon Valley sounds increasingly like a magic fairy. And can you also negotiate for a unicorn and a golden Cadillac? And a real-life pony, totally. It's amazing. I think they'll give you a unicorn app. But that's the extent of that. Listen, I have sort of done this. I've been offered jobs in the past and be like, unfortunately, I have a pre-planned trip to mm. insert name a faraway location here. Mm-hmm. I can't start for two weeks, let's say. But yeah. that's a, but you're not getting paid for it. This is kind Mm-mm. of because that is the most beautiful time, right? Between the time when you get hired and have to begin. You have the promise of money, but not having to do any work. But for not it. having to do any. And yeah. now you can get paid for it. Get paid for it. That is, this is so guys, exciting. this is like when this is like when you go to an office. And they're like, look, we have great showers here. We have catered food. It's because you're not allowed to leave leave. once you get in there. I think it's a bad sign. You always see the dark. Well, I see a positive. Pre-vacation, then work from home, then some paternity. (laughs) I see 12 months of great living. (laughs) Now That's the future I want. (laughs) And you just, you're never, ever going to get out of your jammies. That's right. All you got to do is negotiate for all that and have a child. It's easy. Lizzie O'Leary, thanks for the small talk. Thanks, guys. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our increasingly famous history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week back in 1849, Gothic horror writer Edgar Allan Poe took his last trip. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. If Edgar Allan Poe wrote a story about his own death, it might have read a lot like his real one. It all began on September 27, 1849. Poe was living in Richmond, Virginia. That morning, he took a boat ride to Baltimore. According to the Poe Museum, he was on his way to Philadelphia to do some editing. He never arrived. And there's no reliable information about anything that happened to him until six days later, an election day. 
when a stranger named Joseph Walker found Poe in a Baltimore gutter, half-conscious and in, quote, great distress. Poe wore a shabby outfit, so unlike his typical fine garb that many assumed they were someone else's clothes. He was taken to a hospital, where he remained delirious for days. At one point, he called out for someone named Reynolds. Finally, on October 7th, he died. His last words, Lord help my poor soul. Poe's cause of death was vaguely reported as congestion of the brain. But there was no autopsy, and the death certificate was lost. Meanwhile, theories abound. Was Poe drunk, mugged, suffering from rabies, or maybe it was cooping, a practice whereby political candidates would have people abducted, drugged, and forced to vote, sometimes dressing them in different clothes so they could vote multiple times. Poe's strange death got even stranger in the 1930s. That's when Baltimoreans first spotted a figure known as the Poe Toaster. He'd appear late at night on Poe's birthday, a scarf obscuring his face, and toast the author's gravestone with a sip of cognac. The toaster appeared through 2009, Poe's 200th birthday, and hasn't been seen since. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. On the line is Kurt Bergunier. He is owner of Annabelle Lee Tavern. That is a Poe-themed bar in Baltimore where Poe is buried. First of all, Kurt, how do you make it a Poe-themed bar? Are there ravens everywhere? Yes. Well, my logo is a raven in a window. Of course. Uh, And inside is dark and romantic maroon walls. And I have parts of Poe's poems all over the walls. All right, so there's not a giant razor pendulum or something swinging above the bar? There is not. That might be going a little too far. We go more toward the dark romantic side of Poe. All right, well, you heard the history. What drink did you decide to make? It's called October 7th, which is the day that Mr. Poe died. Of course. It is two parts Drambuie, one part Amontillado on the rocks. Oh, so very simple. This is great, though, because I've always wondered, Amontillado, of course, figures prominently in the short story, The Cask of Amontillado. What is Amontillado? It is a fortified wine. So it's like a vermouth or something? Uh, Yeah, for lack of a better reference, yes. It's not the best tasting fortified wine out there, for sure. So it's an appropriately horrific drink to consume. A little bit, yeah. And But the Drambuie has some sweetness to it, so it takes the edge off the Amontillado. One other thing, is it true you guys have a wake yeah. for Poe? Yes. Uh, it's This year it's falling on the 12th. It's our seventh annual. I set up a little stage in front of our fireplace. We have a gentleman named David Kelt who is a Poe impersonator, and he does a short program of like a short story and a poem. And I, we like play a Beethoven Requiem, and we have lots of candles. And it's already it's decorated for Halloween, so it's oh, nice. definitely a great way to, to get into the Halloween season. But how can you be a Poe impersonator? There was no recording technology back then. Well, he does. <laughs> That's an excellent question. <laughs> so, Brendan, there's a new theory about how Poe died. Okay. About undiagnosed brain tumor. Hmm. Yeah. Apparently people who handled his body when it was moved to its current grave mm-hmm. described his brain dried and hardened in his skull. Ugh. Even though brains <laughs> liquefy pretty fast after death. So it could have been a tumor that they were seeing. Bon appetit, everyone. <laughs> uh, if you still have the stomach to eat or drink anything, yeah, our sorry. cocktail recipes are at dinnerpartydownload.com. 
Org. So we've made some small talk, knocked back a little history. Let's add another key ingredient to this party, some music. And here to help is Perfume Genius. That's the stage name of Seattle musician Mike Hadreas. He's known for his almost painfully personal music, but his new album Too Bright is earning praise for a sometimes anthemic sound and attitude. Here he is to suggest songs for a secretly sensitive party. Hi, it's Mike from Perfume Genius, and I picked a few songs for a dinner party. I don't really tend to listen to party music. If I was really serious about what I would want to play, it would all be songs that were like deeply moving or personal, but could potentially fade underneath and could be played while people are eating. Maybe I could trick them into having some sort of subconsciously moving experience during their, their trades. Uh, the first song I was going to do is called Bodies in Trouble. It's by an artist called Mary Margaret O'Hara. She's Canadian. She released one album in 1998 called Miss America. And I don't really get as obsessed with music as I used to when I was a teenager, but this song I heard recently and listened to it over and over and over for weeks, and I have ended up covering it in my set. I just want to push somebody Nobody won't let you Just want to move somebody I suppose it's kind of easy listening-ish, but there's a really weird, subversive part to it. The way that she sings, she kind of sings around all the instruments and around and off of the beats, and the things she picks to do are very unexpected. Well, her version's very free and um, seemingly light, but of course I do it very dark and um, very deadly serious. I really amp up some of the lyrics that, you know, I twist them in to make them a little more disturbing and personal, as I tend to do. The second song I picked is by Nina Simone. It's called Ain't Got No. I ain't got no home, ain't got no shoes. Ain't got no money, ain't got no class. Well, this one, I mean, I'm gonna get real serious for a second, but I first heard this song after a particularly rough night, and I was in sort of a strange sleeping arrangement with someone I didn't know very well, was not able to sleep. But he had this record in his room, and I ended up playing it over and over for like five hours. Ain't got no love, ain't got no name. It's always a comfort to me, this song. I mean, this song's essentially about how you don't need anything but yourself. You know, I still very much kind of rely on external things to reassure me and make me feel good. And this song is essentially saying, all you need is you. Got my hair, got my head, got my brains, got my ears, got my eyes, got my nose, got my mouth, I got my I have, like, with my boyfriend, I always kind of sit him down and make him listen to songs. If he doesn't invest in them as seriously as I do, I get frustrated. <laughs> so, I, you know, I picked this song because I think, since I have such a strong personal relationship with it, I wouldn't need other people to have the same amount of reverence during um, a burger or whatever. <laughs> so, but if I felt particularly bitchy, I could tell everybody to shut up and listen. Just depending on my mood. I've got For my third song, I really want to take it there. I'm going to take it there with something new and something a little more weird. 
And this song is I Have Walked This Body by Susanna and Jenny Haval. It just came out a few months ago, but it's super intense and real spiritual sounding and loud and droney, but very beautiful. First lines, I have walked this body to the rim of its end. It sounds like somebody maxing out their body until they physically, they just like leave it. That's what I took from it. Because I would like, like if I was having a dinner party, I maybe would play like some top 40, but then eventually I would want it to get real occulty. You know what I mean? Like we're all there, like around a table, we might as well do some kind of ritual or to have some kind of out-of-body experience. For my own song, I probably pick Queen, which is the first single off my new album. A very defiant song. I wrote it as much for me as I did for other people, hoping it would be kind of empowering to hear someone talk about how they're going to shake off the sort of victim-y outlook that they have on the world essentially saying that you can say all you want about me on the street as long as you back up and let me through. A dinner party soundtrack from Mike Hadreas, a.k.a. Perfume Genius. His new album is called Too Bright. All right, coming up, we chat with music maestro Quincy Jones. Comedian Bob Odenkirk talks in detail about his abs. At last. And we resist the urge to have actor Jeffrey Tambor say, hey now. But he does it anyway when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, the great-great-grandchildren of Emily Post answer your etiquette questions. And in a few minutes, comic Bob Odenkirk reveals his all-anxiety workout routine. You may already be practicing it. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's actor Jeffrey Tambor. If you've watched any movie or TV shows in the last 30 years or so, you've likely seen him in one of his (laughs) dozens of character roles, the most beloved probably being George Bluth Sr. on Arrested Development, and of course the talk show sidekick Hank on the groundbreaking Larry Sanders show. But his latest is a leading role. On Amazon's web series Transparent, he plays the closeted transgendered Mort, who surprises his adult kids by coming out as Mara. It's a funny and heartbreaking performance. It's already being touted as a shoo-in for an Emmy Award. I spoke to Tambor this week. It's an honor. Thank you. I love radio. So do we. So this is going to be perfect. No, I do. I, at Wayne State University, I just remembered I used to do radio plays. I'm just recalling that because I just took off my shoes and put my feet up. And I went, oh, yeah, that's what you can do on radio. You did just put your feet up. You're making yourself comfortable. Yeah. You did radio plays in uh, in, in college? Oh, yeah. And and I remember because they, I learned to how, to how you put the script down noiselessly on the floor. That's funny because I can hear you right now sort of sliding around. So you apparently yes. forgot that part. Yes. <laughs> Those are actually my teeth. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about this wonderful show that you are a have part you of it? right now. I have. Oh, great. You, of course, are not transgendered, but you show so much obvious sympathy for this character. What is your emotional connection to Mara, do you think? Wow. That's a great question. Um, the fact that she's courageous. She's 70. She has an arthritic left knee. <laughs> She has uh, reading glasses. I guess what I'm saying is that she's very human 
and I love the break she's making for her authenticity. I will be very honest with you. The degree of difficulty also uh, uh, led me because I went, this is not going to be one, two, three kick. And mm-hmm. I like that in life. Um, but also, it's just, I'm, look, I did Arrested Development and the Larry Sin- Sanders show, or as my mother used to say, the Hank Kingsley show. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I thought it was, you know, I was going to sit down and uh, read in a, in a library the, the great works of Dickens. But Like you were going to retire like you'd done enough, basically? Yeah, well, no. But, I mean, these roles don't come along. And this thing, tap, 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 Jill Soloway wants you. And I, I, I read it within 15 minutes. I was on the way to my hotel in um, Santa Monica, California. And by the time I got to the hotel, I, I was calling my agent saying, I'm in. And they said, well, don't you want to meet? And I said, I'm in. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm sorry, Dad. I'm sorry. I'm just trying. Can you just help me out here? Are you, are you saying that you're going to start dressing up like a lady all the time? <laughs> all my life, my whole life, I've been dressing up like a man. This is me. What was on your mind when you and the filmmakers actually had to portray a person coming out as transgender? Like, what did you feel you wanted to bring to it? Well, I, I say, and perhaps too glibly, and I don't mean it to sound that way, but my politics, Jeffrey Tambor's politics, are in Mora and in the creation of Mora and making her as human as I can make her and as uh, well portrayed as I can. Not for the reviews, but um, because of this community that needs wonderful light shown on it, as well as being. I think the pith of this show is really about uh, what secrets can do in the family. And it answers the question, if I change, will you still love me? Well, there's a, actually, I want to ask you about this. There's a moment in the third episode, I think it is, when your character has made her first transgendered friend. And this mm-hmm. friend tells you basically to expect your family to abandon you after you come mm-hmm. out. Is that what typically yeah. happens? I would imagine that is not rare. Transgender people and people who make decisions like this are otherized in our society. And uh, people are ignorant, squeamish, and phobic. How did you prepare for this role? I mean, uh, did you speak with the people from that community? I'm imagining you did. Well, there were three consultants from the transgender community. They would come to my um, hotel, and they once came, and, and we went out on our first field trip. We went out dancing to a, a club in North Hollywood. I got a transgender club? Yes. And we went dancing, and I remember walking through the hotel, and I thought I was going to uh, die, uh, basically. Why? I was so scared because I was way out of my element. I thought somebody was going to say something or do something. Were you in costume when you did that? Were you? Oh, yes. I'm sorry. I didn't tell you the whole. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I was in wig and I was totally on farm. And I remember there was a, uh, we couldn't get our car there. They couldn't find our car. And we, I stood there forever at the valet station. Oh, uh, th- these were important things to me. I went shopping as more. And then I remember sitting outside next to, you know, civilians. And I was just scared. And I just went, do not ever forget this moment. How did others react to you? Nobody. Uh, there was one person who walked by me at the market and sort of smiled and shook their head, which I thought was very odd. Do you think they recognized you? It was like, what's going on with Well, I don't know. My daughter came, my seven-year-old daughter came to the uh, studio uh, on the day that daddy was going to get a mani-pedi. And I thought was a singular a father moment for me <laughs> in my life. Uh, and I, I prepped her at home by saying, okay, now, uh, mm, uh, 
hmm, uh, and showing pictures of er, uh, I couldn't find the words. And finally she goes, Daddy, Daddy, I get it. Your character is more comfortable being a woman. So you raised some sensitive children. No, no. And let me correct you. And I, I like what you said. I have children, and children have not learned hatred. We have two questions that we ask everyone on this show. Please. And the answer is 16. <laughs> when did I lose my hair? Um, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question would you least like to be asked? Uh, can you, I, I know it's a bother, but I have my phone up. Can you do a, a hey now into the phone? <laughs> I'm not kidding. For those who don't know, that's the catchphrase of Hank from the Larry Sanders show. Yeah. Hey now. But Henry Winkler told me a very interesting thing. And he, and he said, you know, it's their first time. It's your 500th thousandth time or something like that. And he's right. Of course. So do you do it for them? Of course not. <laughs> no, I do. I do. I, I'm, I'm nice to a fault. Hey, now. Oh, I'm getting chills. Me too. Question number two. Yeah. Tell us something we don't know. Let's see. What kind? I'll tell you one thing. My mother, God bless her, there used to be a drug called Milltown. It's a tranquilizer. My mother gave me half a Milltown at my bar mitzvah because <laughs> I said I was nervous. She goes, here, take this. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I was high during my bar mitzvah. <laughs> you kind of, you did see God. You became a child of God. I didn't. And sort of, I was the only bar mitzvah boy who snapped his fingers in rhythm to the Torah. <laughs> Jeffrey Tambor, he stars in the new web series Transparent. The whole first season can be streamed now on Amazon. And Brendan, you know, I was bar mitzvah, despite my last name. No, I didn't. Thanks for inviting me. It wasn't like recently. Don't oh. get sad about it. I thought it was a recent conversion. Here's how long ago it was. As a gift, two different friends gave me a copy of John Cougar's American Fool. Wow. So don't feel bad. Pre-Mellencamp Cougar. <laughs> it was BC before Mellencamp. And now, time to eavesdrop. Bob Odenkirk may be best known as the conniving Saul Goodman on Breaking Bad, and soon its spin-off, Better Call Saul. He was also a force in the legendary sketch show Mr. Show, and more recently, The Birthday Boys. His new collection of humor writing is called A Load of Hooey. Today we overhear him read an excerpt. Abs. You are probably wondering where I got these amazing abs. They're so ripply and rock hard, they're difficult to fathom. If I were a character on a reality show about me and my middle-aged acquaintances, I might be nicknamed The Conundrum in reference to these abs of mine. See, the abs don't match the visage. My perturbed, puffy face sets you up for a blubbery gut. But then you see these abs stacked like bricks, clearly delineated, and you have to ask, does he work out for two or three hours a day or does he just work out all day? Or perhaps you think I purchased them from a plastic surgeon in Beverly Hills. No, my secret is simple. Dynamic tension. Constant dynamic tension. Tension! That is tense and dynamic and never-ending. The best kind of tension there is. I have analyzed each ab and where it draws its tension from so that you too can get the abs you've always dreamed of. The ab on the upper right is taut and sinewy thanks to middle school, specifically the effort of trying to get my two kids placed at a top-notch middle school. 
filling out forms, attending open houses, prepping for interviews, taking the entrance exams. It's a lot of work. And I am there every step of the way, standing behind them, leaning over their shoulders, looking down. That's what tightens the ab. Swallowing hard, also good for the ab, and clenching and unclenching my fists. It's good for the fists. Thanks, kids. Dad loves you, and Dad loves the ab you've given him. The middle right ab bulges handsomely thanks to talk radio. I simply tune in, and my screaming at the host tightens this ab for an extended, uninterrupted rep. Plus, disagreeing with someone on the radio gives me that powerless, overwhelmed feeling I've become addicted to. It's better than a drug, because you get the abs. The upper left ab pops out impressively from the effort of lugging five-gallon water jugs into our kitchen. Actually, the lugging does nothing for the ab. It's the part where you have to tip the full jug and place its spout into the dispensing reservoir without spilling that strains and sculpts this beautiful ab. The short moment of dread focuses tension on this ab like a ray gun. Afterwards, slipping on the spilled water can be great for a whole body clench. The middle ab on the left, not my left, your left if you're looking at me, is called Terence. It's a dignified ab. It tenses each time I read an op-ed article about global warming. The article's point of view is immaterial, simply being reminded that I can do nothing to stop the horrific future of floods and catastrophe gives this ab a taut yank that lingers, burning calories in my well-creased forehead at the same time. The bottom right ab, the biggest of all my abs, and therefore the most impressive, is from not having sex. This ab is always quietly tense, has been for years now. Can you imagine the Dalai Lama's lower right ab? It must be huge. I, however, did not take a vow of chastity, so it would be a sad situation if it didn't yield such an amazing ab. The bottom ab on the left is hard to explain, but I believe that this ab is simply self-aware. It quivers with tension at all times, and I believe it is searching for a sense of purpose for itself, and no answer is forthcoming. Nothing works this ab like a vacation. The aimless uncertainty, the absence of all deadlines, tightens and sculpts this like nothing else. After ten days in Hawaii, this ab looks amazing. Finally, you've got to appreciate my extra abs. That's right. I have two abs more than most people. They're in my lower back, and I'll admit it, they were put there by my Beverly Hills plastic surgeon. I was told they're the latest thing. God, I hope so. They hurt like hell. Bob Odenkirk from the audiobook of his new humor collection, A Load of Hooey. It comes out this week. That was edited slightly for time. And you're listening to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media with your apps. Excuse me, ears. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. Enrico, think back to the very first dinner party you ever attended. Ooh. Uh, pizza with my pal Bob in his dad's rec room while we played Nintendo. I mean, earlier <laughs> than last week. You got to go a little further back. Oh, <laughs> <You gotta go. laughs> I can't remember that far. I'm sorry. All right. Well, I'm talking about the time between breastfeeding and cheeseburgers when your parents probably served you baby food. Oh, yes. A kind of training dinner party. That's right. I guess you could call it. Well, I relived that experience this week. Food Weird. historian Amy Bentley has a new book called Inventing Baby Food, and I met with her at a food lab at NYU to talk about and sample baby food. I started by asking about the birth of the baby food industry. I get it. It started in the early 1930s, and it took off pretty rapidly. 
it was right about the same time that vitamins were discovered. So fruits and vegetables had food value in a way they didn't have before. People thought, wow, these are important. These aren't just extras. And that was about the same time that advertising takes off and industrialization of the food supply is taking off. So jars of baby food are developed in the same way that jars of regular food is developed. And so manufacturers are seasoning them um, the way they would season food for adults with salt or sugar, additives that keep the texture smooth and keep the water from separating. Baby food is manufactured that way. It's a big hit in part because um, it's convenience. More time to smoke Kents and drink highballs. <laughs> exactly. The woman of leisure. <laughs> so they're very popular and they continue popularity until I would say by the 1950s, they're really an entrenched part of American culture. And, and probably 90% of American babies are fed commercial baby food. It's just a rite of passage. So when you talk about the industrialization of baby food, I think of Gerber. I pictured that little baby. I think that's what my mom fed me. So you have some jars of it here. So maybe we can taste some. This yeah. is Gerber ham and ham gravy. <laughs> it has, the ingredients are fresh ham, water. Oh, I smell it. And <laughs> I smell it and it's about two feet from my face. It's fresh ham, water, and cornstarch. Yeah, so this is ham and ham gravy. And we're going to eat this? Yeah, we are. All right. So take, a, take some. Look at the... Ooh. Oh. <laughs> it gets really pink in there, like bubble gum. The top, the top is just is gray. Really gray. And then you get into... <laughs> oh, my it's God. It's really like Pepto-Bismol that's um, sort of thick. Well, let's taste it. All right. All right. Okay. Oh, it tastes like a shoelace. It doesn't really taste like anything. It's weird because it smells strongly of cat food, and yet it tastes like nothing. I mean, you could probably take some ham at home and grind it up, puree it, add a little water, and create something that actually tasted like ham. Gerber baby food still is still succeeding and it's still out there, but a lot of people are moving away from that. What's going on now in baby food? This is kind of like baby food 2.0. <laughs> this happened, uh, really got started like three or four years ago. You start to get the rise of boutique baby food producers, and a lot of them were by mothers who were dissatisfied by what was offered and wanted different flavors, different textures. Um, then the pouch kind of came in, and it just took off like wildfire. And as you can tell, it's all, again, about convenience. Yeah, so this is like how many ounces? This is like um, four ounces. So they look like kind of versions of Capri's yeah. Sun Packet. Top. Uh, the idea is that you just take off the top, and you can either, if the baby is young, put it in a spoon and feed the child with a spoon, or just take off the top and hand it to the kid, and the kid will suck it like a straw. So it's the packaging and then also, but the, what's inside it's yeah, changed. Absolutely. So what's inside is uh, different flavors, uh, more organic, you know, part of kind of the food revolution, the idea of good food that we think of today. There's some benefits and, and, and drawbacks, I would say. It further distances us from kind of thinking about food as within a meal, which helps contain hunger, which helps contain appetite, which helps set good habits for the future. So by not sitting down at a table and kind of, this, this encourages on-the-go, grab-and-go eating. Well, and also what it, it does, it extends the, the use of baby food. Before kind of a very small window that a baby would actually use commercial baby food, somewhere from four months to maybe nine or 10 or 11 months. Yeah. Well, as you can see, this one is, uh, says from about 12 months. So it extends the use of these products for about another year to age two. So baby food companies are delighted by it. Can we taste one of these? I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm torn between the organic chicken, vegetables, and quinoa <laughs> and the squash and sweet peas. This one is, I don't even know what it is. Kiwi. 
Spinach, barley, and Greek yogurt. All right, let's do that one. I'm going for it. Hmm, that's actually not bad. <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm getting some spinach at the end. I'm getting, yeah. It's just sweet. You get a sweet I, I feel the kiwi in there. Mm-hmm. It's a little more complex, actually. It's not, it's not in-your-face sweet. I can actually see myself grabbing this on the go. I can see this changing my whole picnic game. Do they have these in Malbec? All right, you heard it here first, Rico. A Gruyere cracker and red wine mush stuffed in a Capri sunbag. <laughs> it's going to be huge. The time we will save on cooking and doing dishes, yeah. we can spend on naps and watching mash reruns. Oh, perfect. It'll be amazing. For the regressive yuppie demo. Folks, coming up, a new song from rapper Kendrick Lamar and a chat with Quincy Jones. This is the Dinner Party Download. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll hear a brand new tune from Kendrick Lamar. And coming up, we speak with the great Quincy Jones. Yeah. He produced a new documentary about the trumpet player Clark Terry who apparently says stuff like this. If at first you don't succeed, then keep sucking the seed until you suck a seed. (laughs) And in addition to inventing tongue twisters, Terry was Quincy's teacher and mentor. Speaking of which, first it's time to get us schooled in all things etiquette. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week are our champion etiquette experts, Lizzie Post and Daniel Post. Yes. They are the great-great-grandchildren of Emily Post and join us once a month to tackle problems of politesse. Including pronouncing polytests. They co authored <laughs> Emily Post Etiquette, the 18th edition, and host the podcast Awesome Etiquette. And Lizzie, Dan, welcome. How are you guys? We're, we're awesome. Awesome and learning a new word. <laughs> I so know, even right? better. <laughs> yeah. I like champions too. I like that. I think that. of you having medals. I know, right? If Rico and my, if our honor was besmirched over etiquette, you would be our champion. Yes. But hey, I, I want to start with, I, so I asked you guys. How are you? Because I really care. Oh, thank you. Um, but lately, I'm being serious. I've been getting hung up on this. Like when I encounter a bank teller or a security guard, my default has been to say, hi, how are you? But it occurs to me that I don't, you know, that's kind of disingenuous. I don't really want to know. <laughs> I mean, not that I'm a bad person. Okay. He wants to be pleasant. I just want to be pleasant. Totally yeah. valid. But if they engage me, it's not an efficient use of anyone's time. Well, before Good we morning. answer that, I love the sincerity at which you're coming at this. There's a uh. sincerity with it. If I'm not going to really care how you are, then I, I shouldn't be asking you that. I should be saying some other form of greeting. And we have a lot of other greetings. So, yeah, just like Dan just said, good morning. Yeah. You can just say good morning to someone. You don't have to ask them how they They're are. Like, it's four o'clock in the afternoon, sir. Then say good afternoon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or just how about the head bob? How about the little, like, you tip your head back a little and you're like, yeah, man. Yeah, do a little head nod. You know, acknowledging someone else's existence can be mm. as simple as eye contact and that little head nod and a little bit of a smile. Put it does smile Don't in even your have eyes. to say anything. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let us acknowledge the, uh, the letters that have come in from our listeners. Let's They've sent you questions that they want to hear the answer to. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Here's something from Thomas in Spokane, Washington. Thomas writes, I have several trees on my property that drop dying autumn leaves onto adjacent lawns. (laughs) Should I be cleaning up the leaves because they fell from my tree, or should my neighbors be keeping their lawns clean on their own? Because that's just part of life in the inland northwest. It is worth pointing out no one has complained about this yet. Timely question. It is. It's a, so beautiful it's here such, right now. I know. We're dealing with this. Um, I've heard of this being a problem for some people. I've heard of people going so far as to 
cut the branches that are overhanging、yeah. into their yard off.、It、seems wrong to make the tree pay the price, though. I agree with you personally. I think you clean up whatever falls in your yard. I mean, the wind blows, and you might not even have a tree in your yard, and you wind up with leaves in your yard. You clean them up. And before you intrude on someone else's property, you would. Talk to the person, ask or offer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like I just imagine scrambling over the fence and you're getting shot at by the neighbor. Just leave the no, leaves. No, totally. But it's, it might it might be a nice offer to make. I've got a fruit tree. I don't want the limbs shaved off it. You know, could I help get those apples off your yard or leaves in this particular situation? If I could ever help, let me know. While you're drinking a beer, sitting in your chair, looking at them rake leaves. Like, hey, if you guys ever need anything, <laughs> any help, let me know. Give me a shout. Okay, Thomas. There you go. Keep doing nothing. <laughs> uh, here is something from Matthew in Kansas City, Missouri. Matthew writes, "I've got a friend who likes to go out to lunch and catch up. The problem is she's incredibly rude to the waitstaff. She once called the restaurant on her cell phone to make a complaint while we were still in the restaurant. What? I feel uncomfortable ever returning to these places because she's been so rude. What can I do? Do not dine with this person anymore. Yeah, seems pretty clear. <laughs> like I would, I would not be able to stand that. What is it with people mistreating waitstaff? That to me is such an alien thing it, when it happens. It's, it's, it's a sense so of entitlement, and it's so awkward. Difficult thing to deal with, and and it's hard to correct someone else's behavior, particularly、Ooh. in the moment.、Um, something that's that's as egregious as this, you might even bring up as it's happening, just to to save them some embarrassment. Think. Of it is the the broccoli on the tooth rule. You you mention something that's awkward to save them the the difficulty. I've definitely like when a friend's been out of line. I've been like, listen, I'm not comfortable with you treating someone that way when we're out together. All right, and, and they're the like, same- who are you to tell me this, Lizzie? But oh, and, oh, yeah, no, <laughs> that's enough. That is a good question though, because you are who you are. Are people especially polite in front of you? Or- no. <laughs> <laughs> I would think it would be like being a police officer, where everywhere you drive, people go the speed limit. It's like a superpower. Be. Yeah, like, I, had a, I had it bite me in the butt the other week. I had someone get get ticked off. They dropped a. Aren't you the heiress to etiquette? Shouldn't you?、Oh, like they expect you to be thoughtful and polite all the time.、Um, yeah, you're like, let me hold the door open for you while you leave, please. <laughs> Because yes,、And、I'm the heiress to etiquette. Give me a heiress to etiquette. I like that. That could have been an alternative name of your podcast. Air, air, and heiress to etiquette. That is not. Not what I want to be known as. <laughs> All right, let's.、Uh, so, Matt, Matthew, etiquette、uh, superpower. <laughs> either ditch this friend, Matthew, or correct him or her in the moment. Oh no, I've guys. I have another. I have one other possibility for Matthew. Okay.、Mm. Matthew could call his friend while the friend's calling <laughs> the restaurant, <laughs> and they can switch over to call waiting, and you can just say you are a jerk <laughs> like that. What if he just sends a text mid call? Yeah, exactly. It's just all caps. Text him mid call. It's like you're being a jerk. Try that. Hang、one. up. Hang up.、Oh. All right. This next question comes from Shannon in L.A., California. I believe that's Los Angeles. And Shannon writes, "My 21st birthday is coming up, and I'd like to celebrate by attending a 21 plus concert or show with a few close friends.、Huh. As the inviter, should I cover the cost of their tickets and/or parking, or should the invitees pay?" In lieu of a gift.、Hmm, good question. I think that so two things. One, as we get older, it's more often that you're going to host your own birthday,、yeah. <laughs> or if you want to do something for your birthday, you've got to be the one to speak up and say, "Hey, this is what I want to do." I would say to my friends, I'd act more as a group organizer rather than a host,、mm. and I would say, "I would love to go to this concert. This is how much the tickets are. This is how much parking is going to be. So this is kind of what the total night will cost."
Um, Anybody who's in, let me know. But remember, as you shift subtly to that organizer role where you're telling people what you're up to and and letting them know enough information so they can come participate, that you don't take offense if people choose not to come. Right. Because you're not covering their ticket. You're not covering their parking. You're asking them to You may only get get one friend who comes to the concert with you. And not to take that personally. That's that's, everyone's got to make their own choices. Welcome to adulthood, Shannon. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Everyone has a budget. You pay at the door. But happy birthday. Birthday. Happy, Happy birthday. birthday. And if you go out to eat, treat the wait staff with respect. <laughs> All right. You kids. Lizzie and Dan, thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. Hey, thank you. You're most welcome. It's good to be here. <laughs> Lizzie Post and Daniel Post sending great great grandchildren of Emily Post. And by the way, starting on Monday, October 13th, new episodes of Lizzie and Dan's podcast, Awesome Etiquette, will appear on iTunes weekly. That's double the dilemmas and double the solutions. Take a listen, and you too can become an etiquette champion. You'll have no excuse for doing the wrong thing ever again. Lots more info at infiniteguest.org. And as always, you can send in your questions to us for the posts or for others to tackle. Write us at dinnerpartydownload.org. Miles Davis and Dizzy Gillespie are two of the greatest trumpet players who ever lived, and both of them thought Clark Terry was the greatest trumpet player who ever lived. Terry is still alive, and at the age of 94, the spotlight is on him again, thanks to the new music documentary about him called Keep On Keepin' On. Here to talk about it are two of the filmmakers. Music legend Quincy Jones produced it and was Terry's first student. And Al Hicks, a later student of Terry's, directed the movie. It's rolling into theaters now on a wave of acclaim from film festivals. Al, Quincy, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So Clark Terry's this poor kid from St. Louis. Somehow he ends up playing with the marquee jazz orchestras of the 20th century. Uh, Can you tell me about his early life and some of the pit stops he made along the way? Well, you know, I remember as a very young kid, I went to see him with uh, Charlie Barnett. We saw every band in Seattle. And Mm. uh, he was with Charlie Barnett with... uh, Maynard Ferguson, no less. You know, and at wow. 13, you've heard somebody like that with high notes and with all that dexterity and personality. It was mind-boggling. You mentioned Clark Terry's personality, Quincy, and several people in this doc say they know a Clark Terry line when they hear it. Help me out. What makes his sound so distinctive? Like, what's his fingerprint? The way people describe Clark's sound is that it's a really warm sound. They call it the happiest sound in jazz. And... That, to me, is a direct reflection of Clark as a person. I've never heard such a sense of humor come out of a musician like that. He says, if at first you don't succeed, then keep sucking the seed until you suck a seed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he's too much. But you have to have the technique and the dexterity to follow that through. And Clark has got it in terms of fast licks and everything else. And the sense of humor is always there. Quincy, you were you were Clark, one of Clark's first students. You were a twelve-year-old kid. Not one of the first. You were the first, and you were twelve <laughs> yes, years old. You, you, he wasn't even giving lessons. But you bugged You bugged him. You were thirteen. You, he said you were so skinny you could ride on a rooster. Was his quote? <laughs> he said if I turned sideways, I looked like a clarinet. <laughs> <laughs> 
And so you harassed him to give you lessons. And he's like, kid, I, my, I, I work at night. You go to school during the day. This isn't going to work. Um, uh, no, but I was in nightclubs. I played five nightclubs a night at 13. So right. I stayed up and went to see Clark. You know. One of the themes of this film is Clark dedicated his life to teaching at a certain point. Mm-hmm. But it seems like there's part of jazz that can't be taught. Um, yes, it can, what, yeah, what do you but think? it can, though. And, uh, and only the jazz guys can teach you because his sense of humor... You saw when he said, oodle-oodle, oodle-oodle, all those things? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's phonetic sounds and everything to get you really understand that you are imitating a human sound. You all know, right. That's what we went through the first part when when the African slaves were, were percussive and vocal in 1865, and uh, they came, the French came over with their servants, you know, mulatto servants, who had mm. been to conservatory, and the, the, the Africans, they had never seen clarinets before, or trumpets, or trombones, and they had to make those trumpets, and trombones, and clarinets sound like human voices, and bend. And yeah. So, with the plunges and all that stuff, they invented a language that had never been heard before. And then you see Clark speaking that language to one of his students, Justin Coughlin, who's this yes. fresh-faced 23-year-old from Virginia, who's blind, and a phenomenal jazz pianist looking for a break. Um, Al, you know, you and Justin were in class together with Clark. At what point did you realize that this documentary was maybe as much about Justin's relationship with Clark as it was about Clark's life? Our intention was to just focus on Clark and his life and try and document as much as we could about Clark. But we weren't able to get to the mentoring piece as well as we had hoped. Um, People would say he's the greatest trumpet player and flugelhornist of all time. And he's the greatest teacher of all time. But, you know, we couldn't back that up with anything. And Justin would just be, happen to be studying with Clark all the time. And we just ended up asking Justin if we could shoot with him as well as Clark. And he thankfully he said yes. And as soon as we switched the cameras to, to both of them, things just started to happen. I've been thinking about this, E.T. Mm. You know, there's, there's masters and then there's amateurs. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and there's a lot more amateurs than there are masters. Yeah, that's true. And I'm mean, trying to think, what it, what what really makes the difference? One know? thing is desire, mm-hmm. desire to excel. You gotta you gotta want to play better than everybody. Some of them can't if they try it, you know, because they don't practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They don't study it enough. They don't study themselves enough. Mm-hmm. They don't know what their shortcomings are. Know what your shortcomings are. Know what you need to work on and work on it. It's such a neat bond between Clark and Justin. Clark is slowed by diabetes, uh, losing his vision. Justin's blind and trying to break through as a musician. And then into the scene comes you, Quincy, and the audience gets to see three generations of the jazz mentor-mentee relationship. Alan, what was it like to witness that? I mean, the, the energy in the room when Quincy visits is palpable. Yeah, well, at that point, we, we actually didn't know Quincy. That was a surprise uh, visit that Quincy did down to Clark's house. And we just could not believe it and to see those two speaking together you know there's 65 at that point there was 65 years of friendship that they were dwelling on and it was one of the most beautiful things I'd have, I've ever seen to see those two connect yeah the first student of Clark's has come to visit him and for Justin oh, to be there it's amazing man it's amazing I couldn't believe it so there's so much divine intervention here they always say that uh, uh coincidence God's way of remaining anonymous very true but God was really involved with this he had his hand on your right shoulder well thank you both for for sharing Clark 
with us and, and in thank this you, documentary. Ma'am. Thank you for throwing it out to the people. Thank you of so course. much, right? And Quincy, I wonder if you could play DJ. Could you suggest a, a song that we could go out on here? Yeah, get a, a, a tempo one. Why don't we take one of the ones from uh, Duke Ellington? Okay. Harlem Air Shaft. Duke Ellington's Harlem Air Shaft, closing out our conversation with Quincy Jones and Alan Hicks. Their new documentary, Keep Keeping On, is now playing in select theaters nationwide. And I challenge you to watch it and not be inspired by Terry. The guy's unstoppable. All right. But folks, sadly, the dinner party download has to stop for this week. Mm. But have no fear. We are always around on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. Give us a shout. And of course, you can always find our podcast on iTunes, where we are part of the Infinite Guest Podcast Network. Check it out. If you like our show, there's a good chance you'll dig some of our sister podcasts, like film critic Karina Longworth's Hollywood History Show, You Must Remember This. Meanwhile, please remember this. Jackson Musker is associate producer of The Dinner Party Download. Thanks also to Brittany Martin for digital assistance. Engineering help came from Phil Richards. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Kendrick Lamar's 2012 release, Good Kid, Mad City, immediately made him one of the top rappers of his generation. Fans have anxiously awaited a follow-up. A couple of weeks ago, he released the first single from his next album. The track is called I. Bon Appetit. This is a world This is a world premiere. This is a world premiere. I have been through a whole lot. Trial, tribulation, but I know God Satan wanna put me in a bow tie Pray that the holy water don't go dry, yeah, yeah As I look around me So many mother wanna tell me But they don't gonna never drown me In front of a dirty double mirror, they found me And I love myself The world is a ghetto, big guns are dicky fast I love myself What you gon' do? Lift up your head and keep moving. Or let the paranoia haunt you. Peace to fashion, police, I wear my heart. On my sleeve, let the runway start. You know the men's about do love company. What do you want from me and my scars? Everybody lack confidence. Everybody lack confidence. How many times my potential was anonymous? How many times the city making me promises? So I promise this. I love myself. The world is again only guns and dicky signs. I love myself. That's the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks. Hey, guys, your script pages keep blowing into my studio. You know, technically, Kai, that's not our problem. Yeah? How about I have you fired? Okay, now it's our problem. It's our problem now. 